reading from 2 Timothy 2, 14 through 26. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. The word of the Lord. A reading from Luke. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This is the gospel of the Lord. Almighty Father, um, we just said that we believe in the Holy Spirit. Um, and part of the glorious gift of the Holy Spirit is your promise to work inside us. Um, you not only persuade us uh, to believe true things about you, but you work down deep in our hearts at the level of our will. You give us uh, the gift of being able to see how, how you're better than all the alternatives. And so we pray right now that you'll um, persuade our deepest, deepest preferences that you're better, that you're better than everything else, that you're better than all, that you're beautiful. Do that in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Um, and uh, if you, it, it'd be helpful if you turn back to page 10. Um, we're continuing our series uh, this summer in um, Paul's second letter to Timothy. Uh, we're going to be looking at, at the, um, the last two paragraphs in that reading on page 10. And each uh, week over the course of the summer, we've been asking 
different questions that almost not quite amount to the same thing. Um, it's almost like we're asking the same question in different ways, not quite, but uh, we've been asking, for instance, um, how can we as a church have long-term impact for Christ and for the benefit of our city and for the benefit of our lives? Um, that's one way we've asked the question. Another way, last week, we were asking the question, how can we be a church that pleases God? Um, it's easy to be a church that, that, that we might like. Well, I don't know if that's easy, but oftentimes we think of it that way. But how can we be a church that God likes? That was last week. This week, um, I want to put a different spin on it. The passage asks us, so to speak, to ask it, how can we be a church that is useful to God? How can we be useful and ready as a church for all the good works that God wants us to do? Now, look at, uh, look at the reading. I take that question from verse 21, and here's what we're going to learn. If you want to be useful to God, if we're going to be effective as a church, individually and corporately, in God's mission that he has given us, then we need, this is going to be a mouthful, we need comprehensive moral transformation. That's a mouthful, isn't it? Um, I have to use a mouthful to say what Christians used to say in one word. Here's the old word that Christians said. We need to be holy. We need holiness. Um, holiness in the Bible is a big concept, and it's kind of difficult to define for a variety of reasons, but here's a simple way to think of it. Holiness means that we are called to be different. Um, holiness means that we're called to be set apart. It means that we are called to be not normal, but, this is important, we're supposed to be different, not normal, set apart, in a good way, not a bad way. It's easy to be not normal, everybody knows this, in a bad way. But that's not what we're talking about. We want to be not normal, different, set apart in a good way. And more specifically than that, to be, uh, for a Christian to be holy means we need to be different like Jesus is different. We need to share in Jesus' character. Uh, that's why I use the word comprehensive moral transformation. But this passage challenges us in a way because it says holiness... The inward transformation of your character so that you look and smell, so to speak, more like Jesus. Holiness and mission are fundamentally related to each other. Uh, very often, if you've been around uh, church land for a long time, tell me if this is true of you or tell yourself if this is true of you. Very often, Christians in their mind have kind of like two different uh, categories, two different rooms. One is holiness, character transformation, the inward life. That thing. And then the other part of our brain, part of the room in our spiritual life, has to do with outward mission. And we imagine that these things are separate from each other. This passage says, no, 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 no. we got to take those two things. Comprehensive moral transformation in your life, and particularly the secrets of your life, is integrally related to your effectiveness in mission, to your usefulness to God, and to our church's usefulness to God. You cannot be uh, useful in mission without that deep inward transformation called holiness. Um, that's what we're going to see. Just quick illustration to try to make it a little bit clearer. You, you know the measles outbreak here in the city? Um, I hope, hopefully this doesn't stress anybody out. But um, I used to think, I, I used to think that immunization was mainly for my benefit. Like 
I should be immunized so that I'm, I don't get sick. Um, I've learned, and somebody can tell me if I've misunderstood this, I've learned that, that that's actually not entirely accurate. Immunization is important for me, but it's also important for other people around me who maybe aren't immunized. We are immunized not only to protect ourselves, but because it's a benefit to others around us. What I want to show you today is that that's the way, the way it works with Christian holiness. We must be holy not just for ourselves, but for everybody around us, and ultimately for God. That's what we're going to look at. Three questions. Feels like it's always three questions. Um, holiness, pursuing holiness. What do we do? How do we do it? What's the result? First of all, what do we do? Take a look at verse 20. Paul is writing to Timothy, and he says, In a great house, so he starts with an illustration, In a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. There are some honorable things, things for honorable use, and then dishonorable. Okay, imagine a house, and I'm thinking of my, um, my apartment, our apartment that we just moved into. Um, there's two kinds of things in my apartment that we just moved into last week. There's good things, um, like furniture and food and books. And, and then there's bad things, like trash and dust. And in our case, it was just mountains right now. You should come. Mountains of cardboard and dust. It's just everywhere, because we're renovating, and so everything is dirty. Now, if my house is ever going to fulfill its mission, uh, which is to say, if it's ever going to be a nice place for me to live in, and my family to live in, and also, because part of its mission is to be a place of hospitality, if my house is ever going to be a place of hospitality, then at some point, right, we're going to have to get rid of the trash and dust the place. And not only that, we're going to have to get rid of the trash and then keep getting rid of the trash, and we're going to have to dust the place and keep dusting the place, because you know, it doesn't just take once. Okay, that's sort of the idea here. Paul, the apostle, is in prison. He's writing to Timothy, a young pastor, and he says, Timothy, the only way you're going to be useful, ready for every good work, useful to God, is if, Timothy, you clean your house. And then, look back at the text, Paul gets more specific, and he changes the image in verse 22. And he says, Timothy, if you want to be useful to God, ready for every good work, then you need to escape something. Do you see it? Verse 22, you need to escape, and then he says something weird, he says you need to escape youthful passions. Okay, stop. What is he talking about with youthful passions, and what does Paul have against youth? Um, it, it seems to me that, th that this is not an obviously easy thing to understand. Um, Tell me if I'm right. It seems to me that we are popularly trained from our earliest days to sort of idealize youth. Are we not? Um, so usually our ideal images of physical beauty uh, is, is, is a young person. Um, but not only that, it seems to me that very often we are um, we're told um, stories about young people who do remarkable things, and we love those stories um, not just because they do remarkable things, but because they were young when they did them. So everybody wants to read um, uh, Steve Jobs' you know, biography or something like that. And we love Steve Jobs uh, not just because he created a Mac, which is quite a good computer, but because he did it when he was young. 
and there's something mystique about it. And it seems to me that that mystique goes into the rest of our lives in a variety of different ways so that we think that young things or young people or uh, the ambitions and the intuitions and the desires of young people are things that we love. Now, Paul comes and he gives us a little bit of a different angle. Because it's as if Paul comes in and he says, listen, um, young people are fantastic. He's talking to Timothy. Timothy was young. He was very young as a pastor. So he's not against youth. But he is saying this. He says, the problem with youthful passions, desires, intuitions, and ambitions is that very often they can be immature. And more specifically than that, youthful ambitions can be selfish, short-sighted, and deceitful. And because they're um, selfish, short-sighted, and deceitful, they are not reliable guides in your life. In fact, it's worse than that. Because, according to Paul, if you trust your youthful passions, and we'll try to figure out what those are in just a minute, um, you can very easily end up obsessed with yourself and a danger to others and not useful to God's mission. Now, let me give you an example. Um, I think one of the youthful passions that Paul wants to guard Timothy against in this letter is uh, quarrelsomeness, a quarrelsome spirit. Uh, look at verses 23 and 24. Paul looks at Timothy and he says, I think, for example, Timothy, don't be quarrelsome, but rather correct people gently. Now, think about yourself. When you are faced with a conflict, and especially when you're faced with a conflict that has to do with principles that you hold very, very deeply, or debates that you really care about, or um, uh, just any issue that, that is not just a surface preference issue, but is something that really deep down matters. Very often, our youthful passions will well up and end up justifying in our minds being quarrelsome. What do I mean? In the midst of a debate, do you ever resemble this? Have you ever experienced this? We'll end up digging in our heels, uh, maybe uh, perhaps we, if we're yellers, maybe we yell at the other person. Or maybe uh, we ghost the other person. It can happen either way. Um, maybe we vilify the other party that we don't like. Or maybe we end up uh, uh, conveniently distorting the other person's perspective so that we have a bit of a straw man that we can tear down easily. Now, when you're in the midst of it, when you're doing those things, you never know that you're doing that. It's like bad breath. The last person to know they have bad breath is themselves, right? Um, that's what it is when you're being driven by a youthful passion, at, or in particular when you're quarrelsome. So imagine Timothy here. Imagine Timothy's in a debate. He thinks that he's standing up for truth. He thinks that he's speaking truth to stupid. He just thinks he's amazing. Somebody's got to do it. It's a good thing I'm here. I'm going to bring it. And in that situation, his passions are high, he knows he's right, and he feels great about himself. The problem is, it is all of it a sham. Why? Because even if he wins the debate, his youthful passions have made him selfish, short-sighted, and deceived. 
selfish because he's not, re in the midst of the debate, he's not thinking about what is best for his opponent. He's not seeking to win the opponent for the benefit of the other person. He's thinking about himself and he's thinking about winning. It's short-sighted because that kind of a debate almost never leads to la lasting change in either party. And it's, he's deceived because it's very easy for him to imagine that he is serving God and fulfilling his mission when in fact he's doing none of those things. Now this is just an example, but the point is we need to flee youthful passions because the default intuitions and desires and ambitions within our hearts very often sabotage us. And in particular, they'll sabotage our usefulness to God and our helpfulness to other people. Um, I was reading uh, David Brooks recently. Um, he writes for the New York Times, writes a bunch of books. A lot of you will know him. Um, and he talks about five lies. You read this from him? Five lies our culture tells us. Um, I'm not going to comment really on them, but just see if they resonate. Here's one. Career success is fulfilling. Brooks arg argues that's a lie we tell ourselves. Another lie we tell ourselves. I can make myself happy. Third lie we tell ourselves. Life is an individual journey. Fourth lie we tell ourselves. You have to find your own truth. Fifth lie we tell ourselves. Rich and successful people are worth more than poor and unsuccessful people. Now, I'm not really going to comment about any of those, but David Brooks argues that they're all of them lies that we subtly tell ourselves. When you say it out loud like that, it's kind of obvious, but deep down we believe these things. And I, th I think that these lies are compelling to us because they hook into our youthful passions. And they whisper to us, go for it. And so we can end up believing all of those things and living like them, like they're true, uh, just because we have a heart that's oriented to doing that. But the problem is they all of them end up making us selfish, short-sighted, and deceived. And Paul says, flee them. Escape. So then the question follows up then, okay, Paul, well, how do we flee them? How do we escape from these youthful passions? Look at verse 22. So flee youthful passions and pursue instead righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call upon the Lord from a pure heart. Now, notice something there. Look, keep, keep looking at verse 22. Do you notice what Paul doesn't say? He doesn't say what I might expect him to say. He doesn't say suppress those youthful passions. Just keep them down. Just press them down. He doesn't say that. And we shouldn't suppress our youthful passions, primarily because it, it just doesn't work that well. Um, and also, few of us, I, I'm just, you know, I'm not self-aware enough most of the time to know what my youthful passions are that's actually a threat to me and others. He says, don't suppress them. Rather, pursue something better. Pursue righteousness and faith and love and peace. Now, I don't know if those seem better to you, but notice something else. We pursue these things, righteousness and love and joy and peace. We pursue these things with a community, with those who call upon the Lord from a pure heart. Now, friends, Emmanuel, this is super important. Please, if you weren't listening, start. Holiness is a team sport. 
it is always a team sport. Comprehensive moral transformation never happens by yourself. It always happens in a community. Youthful passions make us believe that life is an individual journey, but it's a lie, and it just leaves us alone and lonely and isolated. A tree doesn't grow without soil. A Christian doesn't grow alone. And let me try to persuade you and illustrate why. Look back at verse 22. Um, let's imagine for a second that I, uh, I'm, I'm a Lone Ranger, uh, but I decide I'm going to become amazing. Namely, I'm going to become very, very righteous by myself. Now, here's what's going to happen. What's going to happen is, all alone, I'm going to start imagining what I think righteousness means. What righteousness means to me. And, but the problem, here, here's the problem, I'll almost certainly get it wrong. And in particular, I might imagine that righteousness is just like sanctimoniousness. I don't know, if that, is that a word? Anyways. Or I might imagine that it's self-righteousness. Or that it's better than thou, or something like that. And I'll end up a jerk. That's the technical term. But then, imagine that instead of that, I go, I go deep in Christian community. And deep in Christian community, I meet somebody else who actually is righteous with Jesus' righteousness. What I'll find is that real righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus, is very different from the one that I imagined in my head when I was alone. I'll find that a really righteous with Jesus' righteous type person is not self-righteous at all. They're deeply humble. You ever notice this? They're deeply humble. A person who's really righteous, righteous with the righteousness of Jesus never thinks they're righteous. They always know they're a sinner. But they're also hopeful. And they're deeply hopeful because they know that Jesus forgives them down to the core of who they are. And Jesus has imparted his righteousness that they couldn't manufacture on their own. And so they're humble, they're hopeful, but they're also deeply compelling. And the more you hang around somebody who is righteous with the righteousness of Jesus, the more you see not just them, but you see Jesus. And you find that Jesus is more compelling than any sanctimonious, self-righteous, pharisaic jerk that you've ever imagined. But you'll only see that in community. Or take faith, the second virtue. Um, outside community, I might imagine by myself that a person of faith is uh, just a touch gullible. Um, or, or maybe intellectually dishonest, because they got to believe things that are kind of, you know, implausible. But inside community, when I actually begin to experience somebody who has real biblical faith in Christ, what I'll find is actually the opposite is the case. I'll find somebody who is deeply committed to truth because this person who has real faith in Christ trusts Jesus and Jesus is always uncompromisingly committed to truth. And the more you hang out with somebody who has real faith, the more you'll realize that she's not afraid to ask hard questions because Jesus isn't troubled by the questions either. It'll be different than you expect, but you'll only find that in community. Or love. Outside community, I might imagine that a loving person is, I don't know, sentimental or soft or something like that, kind of like a teddy bear. Um, but in Christian community, when you meet somebody who really loves with the kind of love that Jesus imparts, then you'll be surprised because you'll actually find somebody who is valiant and courageous. 
and you, they'll, they'll be valiant and courageous because they have so internalized Jesus' definition of love. What's Jesus' definition of love? Giving his life upon the cross for his enemies. And when somebody has received that love and then begins to exhibit that love, they're courageous because they're willing to sacrifice themselves for the good of other people, particularly people who they have good reason to hate. You'll only find that in community. Or peace. Outside community, I might imagine that uh, a peaceful person is somebody who just kind of shuns conflict, maybe a doormat, something like that. But again, no. Inside Christian community, you meet somebody who is peaceful with the peace that Christ imparts, then you'll realize you'll be surprised. Because you'll find somebody who doesn't avoid conflict, you'll actually find somebody who's ready to step right into conflict, precisely because Jesus achieved our peace by stepping into conflict on our behalf when he went upon the cross. A person who's really peaceful deals with conflict. They don't avoid it. Now, what I'm trying to show you is that Christian virtues become compelling and attractive in real Christian community. And the reason for that is that in Christian community, you see the real thing. And over time, you'll stop just seeing the remarkable people that you're in community with, but you'll begin to see Jesus Christ. The community of Jesus always points away from itself to Christ alone. And Jesus is the most compelling person you'll ever meet. And you'll realize that Jesus is better than the passions of youth. And you'll realize that the passions of youth that used to be so compelling to you just don't make as much sense anymore. So what do we do? We flee youthful passions. How do we do it? By suppressing them? No, that's silly. But rather by pursuing Jesus' virtues with Jesus' people. Because that's when you start to really experience it. And what's the result? The result is that we become ready for every good work, useful to God and useful to the people around us. Go back to Timothy. And just imagine that uh, Timothy has been kind of transformed in the way he deals with conflict. Imagine that Timothy now has made some progress. He's escaped youthful passions, in particular a quarrelsome spirit. And he did that by immersing himself in Christian community. And he just realized that the Christians, uh, he was around people who were more like Jesus than he was, and that drew him closer to Christ, and he grew. Watch how that changes his approach to conflict. Verse 24. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Now, keep your eyes on that verse, and what I want to show you is how um, that verse is the opposite of youthful passions. Timothy is not shrinking back from conflict at all. He's engaging people who disagree with him, but he's not doing it from the vantage point of a youthful passion. He's not being quarrelsome. What he's doing is he's representing Jesus to his opponent, just like the Christian community has represented Jesus to him. So remember, youthful passions will make you uh, selfish, short-sighted, and deceived. And in that verse, all of that is reversed. Timothy isn't selfish. He cares about his opponent. He's trying to win his opponent and draw his opponent closer to Jesus. He's not short-sighted anymore. He patiently endures evil. That means he endures suffering inflicted by others without resenting them. 
That takes a long-term perspective. And he's not deceived anymore. Instead, he's able to teach the truth accurately and well. You see, comprehensive moral transformation, holiness, has made Timothy now ready for every good work. It's fundamental to his usefulness. Look at verse 25 now. Paul says, God may perhaps grant your opponent in conflict repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Do you see, Emmanuel, do you see how holiness and mission go together? Timothy's character is the decisive factor that allows him to be useful to God, helpful to others, particularly in this context, in, in, a, in a debate. When he's engaging with people that he disagrees with deeply. And the same is true for us, Emmanuel. Our holiness is the decisive factor in what will make us useful for the purposes of God and for the benefit of people around us. And that means, if that's true, then I need to point out another bit. Here it is. The inverse, the flip side is true as well. What that means is that our secret sin is the single greatest danger to our usefulness to God and our ability to impact others well with Christ. Let me put that differently. There is no such thing as secret private sin. We often imagine that the secret private sins of my life that nobody knows about, it does, it's, it's not that big of a deal because it doesn't hurt anybody. As long as it doesn't hurt anybody, I'm fine. I want to say that if you're a Christian, that cannot be true. When I indulge youthful passions and I sin secretly, what happens is I am disfiguring my character and thereby I am maiming my ability to represent Jesus well to people around me. And therefore, I'm making myself thoroughly unprepared for the work that God has for me and deeply unprepared to help the people around me. And once again, therefore, that means that my private sins is an offense against God and an offense against all the people who I might have served if I had been awake and sober. It means my private sin has public impact. And so we need to come to our senses about that. Because the passage mentions the devil, and the devil will love to use our secret sins to undermine our usefulness. And we come to our senses, once again, not by just suppressing, but by looking at Jesus. Because Jesus is the perfect servant of God. He's not quarrelsome. He's kind to everyone. Don't you know that about Jesus? Jesus patiently endured evil to the point of death for you. He's perfectly righteous. He's perfectly loving. And on the cross, he took the penalty of our sin and our private sin. And in exchange, he gives us his peace. And therefore, he is perfectly worthy of your trust and of your confidence and of your faith. And when you come to him, and when you bring your secret sins to him, he gives you his righteousness. And he cleanses you. And he prepares you for every good work. The Lord has wonderful work for you to do. And it will be deeply fulfilling. Don't believe the lie that you are so beyond what God can heal 
that it's just hopeless in your case. Don't believe that lie. That's the hiss of the serpent. Don't believe that lie. The Lord wants to use you in the lives of others. He wants to use you to encourage people towards eternal things and eternal wealth. And the Lord will defeat your sin and trample down Satan under your feet through his work upon the cross. So come to him and be made holy in him and be ready for every good work. Amen? Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.